Let's uh, stand, if you're physically able, as we read God's Word from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Verse 6, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated, please. Thank you for standing in reverence of His word. This is His word. We believe it from Genesis to Maps. It's God-breathed. And it's whole, it's complete, it's all we need. I dare say that in this time and age that we live in, we look around and we see in many ways that the enemy seems to be winning. Now, although we know that's not true, that he's lost the war, it seems like that we're just involved in so many different battles that we wind up losing, even though we know that the enemy has lost the war, we've won the war, but... We're losing out in our battles. And God gives us the pathway to victory in this text. And it primarily zeroes in on one verse, and it's verse 7. And throughout this message, for the next just few minutes, I'd like for us to say these principles together so that we can keep them in the forefront of our thinking. It says in verse 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's say that, say that after me, if you will. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, you know, we've talked about time and again, and we've taken a look at it in Nehemiah. We've taken a look at it in the temptation account of our Lord. We took a look at it in the enemies that were raised up against Nehemiah, and there were three of them. Do you remember them? Uh, and all three of the enemies were representative of our three enemies. Would anybody care to tell us what our three enemies? Who are our three enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil, Brother Don. And so remember that the three enemies that were arrayed against Nehemiah, the first one represented um, the uh, flesh, the second one represented the devil, and the third one represented the world. Now, before he talks about in verse 7, in dealing with our three enemies, he identifies them in this text as well. I want you to look at it carefully. Look in verse 4. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? In other words, the conflict that you have among you, 
If I have a conflict with another believer or I have a dispute with another believer and the confusion that comes along with that, where does that come from? Now, we're told by the world that our conflicts and the sources of our conflict come from without. That we're victims. But yet the Scriptures say something totally different. The Scriptures say that our conflict originates from within. Because the Bible says that we're all sinners and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So look at it. Where do these come from? What's the source? And he says, do they not come from your desires from within for pleasure that war in your members inside your own body? What do you think? What enemy is that? Which one of the three? It's the flesh. Now, I don't look there. You don't have to. You can if you want to. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this. He said the carnal mind is at enmity with the Holy Spirit who lives within us. He talks about the character and the nature of the conflict in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 7, he talks about his personal experience. that I, The good that I would like to do, I don't wind up doing. And the things that I would uh, not like to do, I, I do anyway. And there's an internal struggle that goes on inside that... The flesh vies for control of my life against the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. We're talking to believers here. And the source of the conflict comes within. Who is going to win? And winning, the, the, the terms of winning, what means to win is who is going to control me? Who is going to control me? Is it going to be the Holy Spirit? Or is it going to be the flesh that wars against the Holy Spirit within me? So there's the first one, is the flesh. Now it says... You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now, the first enemy disclosed there, the internal war within, is the flesh. The second enemy disclosed here is none other than the devil. Look what it says. It says, you murder and covet. Do you know what Jesus said about the devil in John chapter 8? Jesus said about the devil in John chapter 8 that he is a murderer. And he's been a murderer from the beginning. That's all he's ever been is a murderer. So this is, speaks of the devil. It, moreover, it also says that when you do ask, you ask amiss, not for the glory of God is what that means. You don't pray that God will be glorified in your requests in the way you ask. You pray so that you can manipulate God to do what you think is best and to do to pander to your flesh. And who is it? Who is the expert at taking the Word of God and twisting it ever so gently and manipulating it ever so gently to make it say what He wants it to say? The devil. As a matter of fact, He did that in the temptation account. And we'll look at that when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. So, we have the flesh, we have the devil, and then look at, the, look at the, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is the world but this? Jesus said, or John said, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, that the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
And he speaks of the pride. He said, you know what? God resists the proud. God resists the spirit of the age that exalts itself above God and tries to usurp the authority and the sovereign rights that God has as sovereign. So, in these three, we have the enemies that are pitted against us. And in verse 7, it tells how to defeat every last one of them. Look, the enemies are the flesh, the enemies are the devil, and the enemies are the world. Then it says, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble in verse 6. And then verse 7, here it says, here's the pathway to victory. It's very simple. If we can walk out of here today, embedded in our spirits, these three things, this would have been a great morning. Submit to God. Say it with me, would you? Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Three simple things. Submit to God. Ray, would you come up here just one second? Could you come up here just a second? Have you ever seen the Geico commercial that they play every five minutes on television? Geico must have more of an advertising budget than any advertiser in television in, in the television arena right now. And they've got this commercial where the Geico, the little the gecko that represents Geico, stands there and he talks about trust and he talks about he's trying to change the, the thing that's that's working. And so what he says to him is, have you know, have you seen it? He says, uh, he said, listen, we, go, we need to do an exercise. And the guy stands over there. So, Ray, you stand right there, will you? Okay, you know, you know where I'm getting at? Okay, you, Ray's going to stand right there. All right, Ray, what I want you to do is I want you to just lean backwards totally, and, and, and I promise you I'll catch you. Now, see, he's not going to do that, right? He's not going to do that. Because Ray knows enough about me to know that there's a good chance I might not do it. Amen? But Thank you, Brother Ray. L listen to me. When it says, I want you to get a picture of this. I want you to listen to this now. We've got this idea about submission to God. All right, now, this word submit is pregnant with meaning. But listen to this. It means to line up under. It does mean that. It does speak of authority. It does speak of someone who's in control, God, and someone who should, who should rightfully submit to that control because he rightfully deserves it. If we believe the things that we believe about God, one of the things that we believe about God, and the Bible clearly teaches about God in Scripture, is God is sovereign. There's only one God. There's only one God. There was nobody else there to vote when He got voted in. He was the only one who voted, and there's not going to be a recount. God is God, and there's one God. Now, there are competitors for God, but there's only one God, and He deserves to be submitted to. Several reasons He deserves it. One of which, and the primary one probably, is He created you and I. We, we should ascribe all glory and submission to God as our Creator. We should be grateful for Him having created us. We should daily recognize that every heartbeat that we have that we're working on right now is an involuntary act on our part, but it is an intentional act on God's part, and it can be taken away just like that. That we are totally and completely in His hands. In other words, if God were standing here, and I'm standing there where Ray was, I could easily... Right? Because see, he's, because see, but it goes beyond this, and I'm not going to do a good job of sharing this, but I'm going to try. The submission to God is unlike any other area of submission that you have in your life. You submit to employers. Every one of us in here have a boss. Even if you're self-employed, you have a boss. Customer. Right? You know what? The customer is always right. The customer might not always be right, but he's always the customer. 
And so we have, and we have people who are in authority over us. We have government authority. We have all lines of authority. And we submit to that authority because it's right to do so. But submitting to God's authority goes far beyond the fact that it's His position and He demands it. Submitting to God's authority is based on love. You submit to who you trust. If you don't trust, the reason that Ray, with his puny faith, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but the reason, <clears throat> the reason that Ray would not fall back on this gym floor and trust me to hold him is because Ray's trust of me only goes so far. You only fully submit to those you trust. And you only fully trust those you know to love you. Think about that. You only submit to those you fully trust. And you only fully trust those you know to unconditionally love you. So what that means is this. Wherever I'm not submitting to God in my life, wherever there is rebellion in my life, there is distrust. And the, at the root of that distrust is a fundamental misunderstanding of the love of God. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the love of God. We don't understand the love of God. We don't understand the nature and character of the love of God. As a matter of fact, we take other loves and we put them on God and act as if God acts the way these other loves that have often disappointed us act. We put them on Him. Rather than going to the Scriptures and finding out the character and nature of God, we go look around like this. And we go messing and gomming on this level rather than looking into the eternal nature of the loving God. We may love a, you know, oh, it's, it's bigger than me. You know, two people fall in love and they have puppy love and they say, oh, this thing is just bigger than the both of us. What in the world does that mean? You know what love is? Love is an act of the will. It is a choice and it's often accompanied by emotion and it's always sacrificial, but it is a choice. It is not something that's imposed on you as some emotional exercise that's freely and all of that. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. And God, because He is love, chose to love you. Praise His holy name. And if He loves you, then He's trustworthy. And if He's trustworthy, He's worthy to be submitted to. I want you to know that every single relationship issue that you have in your life, that you ever have had, or you ever will have as a believer, every single area of your life in which you are not in submission to God is because you don't understand the love of God. And it can be traced back to that every time. And so He said, you know, you know what? Let go. Let me have it. Submit. And this is what Jesus did in the narrative when He was tempted. And it says, now watch this, in the narrative it says, therefore submit to God. And what does it say? In verse 8 it tells you how to do that. Now watch it. Submit to God. Then it says resist the devil and he will flee from you. But verse 8 picks up and says, what is submission? That, the, 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 the phrase begs the question, what does it mean to submit to God? Well, there it is right here. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. All right, what does that mean? We've talked about this time and again, and we've, we've emphasized it over and over and over again. But don't forget this, dear ones, our dear friends, our loved ones. You're sweet, and I love you so much, and God loves you so much. But listen to it. Don't forget this. In salvation, God sought you. But in sanctification, you seek Him. See, before you ever got saved, 
before you ever came to saving grace, before you ever repented toward God and put your faith in His Son, God pursued you. You never pursued Him. He pursued you. The Bible says, it makes it abundantly clear, in Romans chapter 3, in Psalm chapter 14, in Psalm 53, in those three places, quoting one another, no one seeks God, no, not one. The Bible says that the, the wicked man does not seek after the Lord and God is in none of his thoughts. You did not pursue God, nor did I when I got saved. When I came to the point where I realized that I bowed down at a cross and put my trust in the blood that was shed for me there on that cross that He substituted, that He died for a sinner like me. He who knew no sin became sin that He might make a sinner like me righteous. When I came to that point, it wasn't because I decided, gee, I need God. It's because God started calling me. God started pursuing me. God went after me. Now, when that moment occurred, when I got saved, and He redeemed me by His grace, and He showed me to be the sinner that I was, that I repented toward God and put my faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came and lived inside me, and now it's on. And God says, Your turn! I went after you, and now, how badly do you want me? The Bible says in Hebrews eleven 6, I've quoted this thing so often, but it's one of my favorite verses. Pat, it says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he who comes to Him must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He said, you draw near to God, you've got the assurance that God will draw near to you. And how do you seek Him? In the Scriptures immersing yourself in the Word of God and asking God to speak and putting your yes on the table and saying, Oh Lord, Oh Lord, I want to hear from you. And I don't want to just hear. And David, Pastor Dave said it so well this morning. The Christian life is not what you do for God. The Christian life is God. It's being rightly related to Him through His Son. It's not about direction. It's about the direction giver. It's not about gifts. It's about the gift giver. It's not about usefulness. It's about the only one who can make you useful. It's being knit to Him. This is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That same word from which know is translated is the same word from which it says, Mary did not know Joseph until she was married. She was a virgin. They had never had a sexual relationship and that's the kind of intimacy God's talking about that He has purchased through His Son for you and I. That's our right. That's our inheritance. That's our access. And that doesn't make life. It doesn't make your life better. That's the very definition of life. It's about knowing Him. And as you pursue Him, He'll, he'll say, you know what? I went after you. Now it's your turn, Ray. Now it's your turn. And He's saying, come to me, son. Come to me. And a God who would go to such great expense to purchase you and I, do you think He's ever going to turn a, a deaf ear to His children who would pursue Him? I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Can you imagine Andrew coming to me one day and saying, Dad, i got some questions about my career and where I should go to college. And I go, go out there and play and go figure it out yourself. I've got time for you. I'm a gooberhead. And I would stop what I'm doing and say, Son, let's talk. Let's get out the Bible and let's see what God might be saying. And get some catalogs and let's go visit and go here and there and wherever else. Whatever we can do, let's pursue the will of God. Let's pursue the heart of God. I wouldn't stop until I could help Him with everything I could possibly help Him with because I love Him. And if I love Him, 
The Bible says, if we desire to give good gifts to our children and we're sinners, how much more does the Heavenly Father desire to give good gifts to His children? It's a promise, saint. You can have as much of God as you want. High time, high time, high time in the Christian culture that we live in that we would pursue the God for the right reason. And that is not what He can give to you or what He can do for you, but pursue Him for the fact that He alone is worthy. Amen? He says, okay, how do you do it? How do you draw near to God? Through the Word? Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. Hold them up. You remember that? When we said that the Jewish, we were were in the text in Psalm 66, do you remember that a couple of weeks ago? And we were talking about that we talk about praying like this and we do all these things. That's all well and fine. And then around the dinner table we pray like this so you can hold the hand of everybody else to keep them from grabbing the food before you get a chance to. You know, that kind of thing. That's old hands. And we try to be spiritual, but really in my house it's to keep everybody from grabbing everything. And so here, but the Jew, what did he do? The Hebrew man, what did he do? Remember, we all stood up and I asked you to put your hands up like that. It's an inspection. God, look at them. What's on them right there? Are they clean? Are they clean, Lord? Because see, whatever my hands do is told by my heart. My heart informs the brain and the brain kicks the nervous system into, into, into gear and makes my hands do whatever. But it starts from right here. And so he's basically saying, Lord, by cleansing my hands, you're cleansing my heart. He's saying, Lord, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. When you cleanse your hands, it directly affects the heart and the purification. You double-minded. Listen, pick a team. Decide who you're going to live for. It's been said before that if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in, but if you aim for earth, you get neither. Pick a team. Put on a jersey. Stake a claim. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And look, in verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. You know what that denotes? It denotes godly sorrow over sin. It's, it's, it's sorrow not based on consequences. Most of the time, we get sorrowful about sin. This is called worldly sorrow. And anybody does this. Anybody. Go talk to the people that Ray ministers to at the Cobb County Jail. And every one of them have worldly sorrow. I promise you that. Because their actions landed them in jail and none of them want to be there. That's worldly sorrow. Man, I'm sorry about what I did because now I'm having to suffer the what? Consequences. Godly sorrow is being broken over breaking the heart of God. And the reason the brokenness is so painful is because He is so good. The sin against love is the greatest sin of all. When you break the heart of those who love you, that's the way and the key to being the most brokenhearted. When you break the heart of one who has been so good to you, that's the most brokenness you can ever experience. And God's good. He's good all the time. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or turning. God is good through and through. And He's been gracious in dealing with us. And when we sin against Him, godly sorrow, the mourning is to say, Lord, I sinned against He said, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. 
drop our pride and humble ourselves before the Lord and submit. But it's not the kind of submission that God's up in heaven saying, okay, I'm God and you're not. And Lewis, you better submit. I'm going to wipe you out any minute if you don't submit. You better submit because I'm God. It's not like that. It's like this. Let me tell you what it's like. It's like this. Lizzie, submit to me. That's my rightful place in your life. And I purchased the way that you can submit. I crushed my son because I love you. God does not need my submission. God desires my submission. God doesn't do it by duress. God doesn't do it by threat. God doesn't do it by overtopping. God doesn't do it by punishing me. God does not do it by slapping me around. God did it by punishing His Son. Then submission comes, not because it's just His rightful place, but it's because of the character and the witness of the One to whom submission is exclusively due. What was He willing to do to make it so that I no longer have to submit to the spirit of this age and the flesh and the devil? He was willing to crush His precious Son. Care to follow Him? Care to follow Him? And so He says, okay, here's the pathway to submission is found in these verses. Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. How do you do it? You cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You cleanse your hands. Sorry. You cleanse your hands, it leads to a purified heart. We've got a short. Pick a team. Lament, warm, and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Godly sorrow. God, I've broken your heart. I've been rebellious. Even under the guise of Austin pretending to be submissive. We've told the story before about the teacher who gets on to little Johnny. I feel sorry for anybody named Johnny because he's always used as an example of bad behavior. Let's say little Ralph. Little Ralph. And the teacher looks at little Ralph and he's running all over around the room. And she finally gets enough and she says, Ralph, here's the deal. I want you to go sit in the corner for the rest of the class. There's an hour left in the class and the teacher's just going, I got him. And she's having so much fun watching him squirm in the corner, knowing it's killing him. But he gets over there and he seems to be a little bit unbothered by it. And she walks over to the corner and says, Ralph, what do you think? He said, teacher, I might be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside I'm running around all over this room. Some of us are sitting down on the outside, but on the inside we're running around stepping all over his authority. Weeping may endure for the night, old friends, but joy comes in the morning. You don't start with the weeping. You humble yourself and turn to God and He cleanses you and puts you on the right path. Say it together. Submit to God. Resist the devil and He'll flee from you. Okay, submit to God. Let's go look. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to move around because that way it won't do this. But that's yeah, hard to do. Matthew chapter 4. Let's go look at it. We'll go take a, just a whirlwind trip around it and then we'll close. Matthew chapter 4. Submit to God. How do you submit to God? You draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. Draw near to somebody's heart. you got to know what they say. If, you've got, if you know what somebody says and you know their heart, what's the heart? Scripture. You draw near to God. And then we ask for cleansing. 
We ask you to take away our double-mindedness. Let's pick a team. Let's slap on a jersey. Lord, I'm living for you and not me anymore. The world behind me and the cross before me, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I'm submitting to you because I've come to know and believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're the one who has eternal life, and you're the one who has the words of life, and you are good, and you are full of love, you are the source of love, and I can't figure it out, and I'm not going to waste my time trying because the Bible doesn't tell me anything except for the fact that God loves me because He chose to love me. Period. There's nothing else to say. And then, when the devil brings it on, you resist him. And our Lord showed us how. But he not only showed us how, he did it on our behalf. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is baptized. You remember that, John the Baptist. He's beginning his public ministry. And we have the temptation account. We have the temptation account in Matthew. We have the temptation account in Mark. We have the temptation account in Luke. Matthew shows him as the Messiah, the King of the world. Mark shows him as a serpent servant. Luke shows him as the Son of Man. John shows him as God. And the reason the temptation account is not in the Gospel of John is because God can't be tempted with sin. So we've got it in the three accounts here. And here we've got the, probably the most detailed one right here. And it says this. John 4. Let's go to 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterwards he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. First temptation. First temptation was leveled at his flesh. It's the same order as it's in James. It's at flesh and devil and world. Watch this. It's leveled at his flesh. He had an appetite. He was a man, God who had become a man. He was hungry. He answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written. Read between the lines. Here's what the devil was saying to him. Listen, you're the Son of God and you're hungry? If you're the Son of God, is this the way God treats His children? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a circumstance that if you were just gut level honest about it, you just ask that question. God, is this the way you treat your children? I'm confused. I don't understand. How could these events be orchestrated this way? I'm your son. I'm your daughter. Is this the way you treat your children? The devil's over there just, just feeding that. Oh, oh, you're a child of God and things are not going well? Turn on Trinity and they'll tell you. You're, there's a problem. You're supposed to be prosperous. Everything's supposed to be going great. Things go better with Jesus. Get saved and all your problems will be over with. And if you have any problems, maybe you were never saved in the first place. The only problem, that's the Bible. Other than that, it's fine. And he says, if you're the Son of God. We went through a whole series of messages, probably ten of them, about putting on the armor of God. Do you put on the armor in the morning? Do. Praise the Lord, Melissa. Amen. And you dress yourself before you even get out of the bed and say, all right, Lord, sometimes I'm so sleepy because I'm not a morning person. I'll get through three of them and have to start over. And I said, okay, Lord, well, let me go back over it again. Just make sure I hit all six of them. And me put on, would you put on my, would you gird my loins with the belt of truth? Would you put on my chest the breastplate of righteousness? Would you shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Would you put on my head the helmet, I mean, put on, help me to take up the shield of faith with which I'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy? Put on my head the helmet of salvation and help me to take up the sword, which is the word, the Holy Spirit, the rhema, that I'll be able to penetrate the darkness and defeat the enemy. 
And we're dressed in the Word. And we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate of righteousness with the truth to anchor you is the truth about who you are in Christ. And we can come back at the temptation of the devil and say, if you are the Son of God. That's so wait just a minute. Let me see what the Word says about that. To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. Oh, what love God has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God and such as we are, that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. Rejoice in the day when you're suffering for doing right because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. Yes, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Son of God. You better believe it. I'm the Son of God through the Son of God. And you're not going to take away my inheritance. You're not going to talk me out of it because I've dressed with truth. I'm dressed with a breastplate of righteousness. I'm not righteous on my own. I never claimed to be. And when I did, God unearthed my theology, showed me to be unrighteous, pointed me to His righteous Son and said, put your trust in Him and I'll make you righteous. So I've got this on me. Who are you to accuse God's elect? I've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. If I'm the Son of God, are you kidding? There are three ways to get into a family. Adoption, marriage, and birth. We've been adopted into the family of God, sons and daughters of the children of God. We've been born again by the Spirit of God, and we're the bride of Christ. I got in all three ways. If I'm the Son of God. There's no if to it. Yes, I am. Hallelujah, I'm a child of God. You see it? What is that? Nothing but rhema. You stick it in the darkness. It's rhema. It's the only offensive weapon of the weaponry we have. And it sticks right into the enemy's belly. Is the Son of God? Yeah. Does it have anything to do with circumstances? Absolutely not. It has to do with your truth. So he, he says, listen, man's going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Next. Got another one? Then the devil took him up into the holy city. Verse 5. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God. There he goes again. Throw yourself down for it is written. He said, okay, if you're the Son of God, then go about proving it. He shall give your angels charge over you. And their hands shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You know what the devil did? He took a, he took a, took a scripture that was about trusting God. I mean, the, the theme of the scripture is trusting God and turned it into a scripture about testing God. That's what he did. And by so doing that, turned it just ever so slightly. That's why we know this was the devil. See, this was the devil. He twisted the Word of God, which he does all the time. And Jesus said, hold on just one second. You're trying to get me to tempt God. And the Bible says not to do that. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You have needs. You meet them. I maybe even ask God to manipulate the circumstances according to your will and use Scripture to do it. And then you got Him to blame when it doesn't turn out right. You see it? What a sham. What a sorry enemy. The devil. He submitted to God. 
then the world. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and glory. He said to him, All these things I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him. The angels came and ministered to him. Listen to this. I'm sorry. We have the theology in James chapter 4. And we have an example of it in Matthew chapter 4. What happened? Jesus was submissive to the will of the Father. He was walking in the kingdom control of the Father. He resisted the devil by using the Word of God. And what did the devil do? You see it? Say it with me. After me, we submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee. You know what the wonderful thing about that is? You know the wonderful thing about, about of the eight zillion reasons why the Christian life is so wonderful, bro? You know what one of them is? One, you want me to tell you one of them? This is a big one, though. That victory is not an example to follow. But by faith, it is power to follow. You see? That, that's not an example to follow. Now, is Christ our example? Absolutely. But... Because the Holy Spirit lives inside you and I, and Jesus is the fulfillment of everything He would ask of you. It's not victory to look at and try to model and emulate. It is victory to tap into by faith. It's already been done. It's already been done. In other words, the results are guaranteed. If you submit to God and you resist the devil through His Word, He'll flee. Now, who is sovereign over the devil's activity, the intensity of, this, of the, uh, the temptation, and the longevity of it? Is the devil in charge of that? The devil's not in charge of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this. There's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such is common to man. And that God, along with the temptation, will provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. So you can't say that when you're tempted, yours is unique or maybe more of a threat than it is to others. It's common to man. And Jesus, when he looked at Peter, and we studied this at length, and he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. He had to ask for permission to do that. And what did God want? What does God want? Does God just want your victory? Yes. Does God just want you to be victorious? Yes. Will He teach you when you're not? Yes. But guess what He really wants? He wants us to walk through this. And He permits it. Not so that we could realize victory. But so we could draw closer to the one who gives it. And get to see Him in your moment. Where are you facing temptation right now? Where are the defeats coming from? They're coming from within. War within about who's going to control. It's coming from within. It's coming from the lies of the devil who take the, the, the word and tweak it ever so gently this way or that way and try to take it, try to even breed distrust in God by testing him over things he never gave you permission to test you over in the first place. Let's try to manipulate and control God and sometimes we can even use the scriptures to do that, trying to contort things. So we have not when we do ask, because we ask amiss. Because we're trying to consume it upon our own self. Because it was originated through the demonic influence of trying to manipulate God to do what I know best rather than trusting Him for what He knows to be best.
It's the one who knows the beginning from the end. So it comes from that. And where does it come from too? Because we're spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. We have committed spiritual harlotry with the world. And we've decided that this world is, is pretty good, pretty good place. And, and we kind of get caught up in the spirit of the age and advance our own cause and living by our lusts and our emotions and things that we can see, feel, and touch and taste and the opinions of others and status and position and all the other things that the world can't give you if you'll bow to it. That's where it comes from. How do you, how do you handle it? Say it, say it after you, will you? Submit to God. Submit to God. How do you submit to God? You submit to God by cleansing your hands, getting rid of your double-mindedness, mourning over sin, walking in repentant faith, predicated upon humility. Okay? You submit to God. Resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? It's a sword. It's the only offensive weapon in the armor. That's it. The rest of them are to perfect, protect the defenses. The only offensive weapon we have is this. By the way, you know why it's the only one? Why is it right? Because it's all we need. Amen? And what will happen when he pounds you? What will happen? And he will and the devil will flee from Submit to God. Resist the devil. You can put that into practice today. Today. And you will tap into victory already won. You will not emulate what Jesus did. You will participate. In what Jesus has already done. The power will flow from you. It's the difference between having some kind of religious profession and having a form of godliness but denying the power therein versus walking in Holy Spirit power. Where one enemy after the other that used to take you out is crushed under the weight of the empty tomb and Christ seated at the right hand of the Father at the Amen.